Let's begin at chapter 6, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. Let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine may not be spoken against. And let those who have believers as their masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but let them serve them all the more, because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. In the beginning of the chapter, it's actually, in the first two verses, a continuation from the preceding chapter. Because in the preceding chapter, he has advised Timothy, this pastor, on how to treat widows and how to treat elders, various people and groups of people in the church. And here now, how to deal with conflicts that arise between slaves and masters in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. How to deal with this conflict. And then from verses 3 until the end of the chapter, he will, in a sense, summarize what the, the, uh, the new or young pastor, Timothy, should be focused on. Verses 1 and 2, how to relate properly between slave and master. In verse 1, he treats slaves with unbelieving masters, and then in verse 2, slaves with believing masters. So both cases, verse 1 is a believing slave with an unbelieving master, and then a belie- in verse 2, a believing slave with a believing master. What should the relationship contain? How should it be conducted? Verse 1, let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Every slave who hears this word of God, who's supposed to follow Christ faithfully, he's supposed to regard his own master as worthy of all honor. Even though he has an unbelieving master, he should honor the unbelieving master. He's in authority, uh, he's under authority, and since the master is in authority over him, he should receive due honor. In whatever ways the master expects the slave to behave, and to carry out his work and all his duties, he should do it, and he should do it respectfully. Not begrudgingly, and not complaining that he's an unbeliever, and since he's an unbeliever, I shouldn't obey him. It's not the case that whenever we are subordinate to someone, because our superior is an unbeliever, automatically we don't need to obey our superior. 
That is not a biblical concept. We ought to obey our superiors to the extent that they are carrying out their duties and to the extent that they tell us to do things in accordance with God's will. If they ask us to lie and cheat and steal, murder and do things like that, worship idols, then of course we can resist and we ought to resist in the, in the proper way, tell them that we cannot do so. But when they are telling us to do work, whatever the work it is, whatever our duties are, we shouldn't say, well, they're unbelievers, therefore I can do whatever I think and whatever I want. It's not the case at all. And what's the reason? Verse 1 says, the reason for this behavior, proper honor toward our unbelieving masters and superiors, is so that the, word of, uh, so that the name of God and our doctrine may not be spoken against. If we bear the name of Christ, we tell people we're Christians, then if we are insubordinate, we disobey, we don't do what our masters or superiors tell us to do, then we are shaming the name of Christ. We say we're Christians, we say we are humble, we say we've been saved from sin, we were rebellious, we're not rebellious anymore, we used to be against God, now we are not against God anymore. If we're that way, if we say those things, we bear the name of God, we ought not to bring shame to his name by disobedience. Why would anyone want to know our God if we are unreliable and disobedient and contentious people in the workplace? Why would anyone want to worship our God, an unbeliever? He wouldn't want to do that. And not only is the name of God, but our doctrine, the doctrine of the gospel, the gospel itself will be rendered ineffectual. People will mock it. People will say, well, you say that you're a different man now. You say you're safe from your sins, but you don't behave any differently. So then the doctrine, the gospel becomes, in their view, impotent. It's a gospel that has no power. It's powerless to save anybody and to make any change in one's life. And this is the problem. When we are disrespectful and dishonor our superiors, God's name is jeopardized and the gospel is jeopardized. We're not helping anybody. We're not helping ourselves and we are bringing shame and blasphemy to the name of God and the gospel of Christ. <clears throat> Therefore, simply because our masters or superiors are unbelievers is no grounds to be reckless and disobedient and insubordinate in our behavior. Verse 2, another scenario, believing slave with a believing master. Verse 2, and let those who have believers as their masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren. Now here we have another scenario. Some people think that because I have a believer as my superior, then he shouldn't be able to tell me what to do. I don't need to listen to him. He's a believer, and he should treat me as an equal. And if he treats me as an equal, he has no authority and no right to tell me what to do. I don't need to obey him. We're on equal ground. He's a brother. We're all brothers, and brothers should not tell brothers what to do. That's the mentality. It's the sinful mentality. He's saying, don't do that either. Don't be disrespectful to believing masters either. But instead, verse 2 says, but let them serve them all the more. But let them serve them all the more. This coincides with the belief, like Galatians 6.10, so then let us do good to all men, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. 
We ought to be kind and generous to whomever, but especially to believers, because we're a part of a close-knit family of God. We're all redeemed. So we ought to respect each other even more, even more than we did in the past. Let them serve them all the more. And this service ultimately is not just to the master or to the superior, it is to God himself. When we serve one another as believers in the body of Christ, we're ultimately serving God himself. To the extent that you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. That's the concept Jesus explained in Matthew 25. But it's also the case that when we are serving our masters, we are ultimately serving Christ. Notice Colossians 3.22. Colossians 3.22. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service, as those who merely please men, but, sincere, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord, rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. And then in Colossians 4, verse 1, there is a word also, a warning to the masters. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Yes, the relationships ought to both be held accountable and held accountable under the authority of God. And here in 1 Timothy 6.2, the focus is on the problem that the slaves are causing because they have believing masters and they don't want to listen to them. But instead, he says, let them serve them all the more. He, he further explains his reason. 1 Timothy 6.2 he says, because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Those who partake of the benefit. The benefit of the gospel are partaken of together because we are together believers. We believe the same thing and we are all beloved. God considers all of us a part of the family of God because we are believers and we're also beloved. We are loved by God, and we ought to love one another. Loving one another does not entail disrespect. Believing the same thing does not mean we ought to disrespect. As believers and beloved, for these reasons, we ought to obey those who are our superiors. How important is this? It's not enough for Paul throughout this letter to simply state the case, he has to urge Timothy. We saw this in chapter 4 in particular, many times when he urged Timothy to do what he was instructing him to do. He does so again right here in verse 2. Teach and preach these principles. Teach and preach these principles. It's easy for Timothy and for many of us to be timid in the face of confrontation. It's, it's easy to be timid. Second Timothy chapter two verse Second Timothy one verse seven. Second Timothy one seven. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love 
and discipline. Timidity or fearfulness does not come from God. God gives power, love, and discipline. This is what's needed of the minister of God to teach and preach like this. He has to do this. He has to do it so that there can be love between the brethren, that there can be harmony and unity, that people in the church reflect Christ, the name of Christ, and are a good example to those outside. Those who are outside the church as unbelievers ought to learn from this. It requires exhortation. It requires the teaching and preaching of these things. If no one is hearing it, then often no one is actually going to think of the right way to act. If we don't have teachers and preachers, then it's not going to be brought to our attention. And we need it brought to our attention. He continues now to... He's going to summarize some of the things he has said before and to exhort Timothy with the future. Verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine... The different doctrine is anything that he has already said, not just what he said in verses 1 and 2, but everything he's already said and written in this letter. That would be a different doctrine. Any other doctrine, and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone, anyone advocates a different doctrine, does not agree with sound words, the words that he's teaching are sound words, and these words are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only what Jesus said in his ministry, but what Jesus said through his appointed apostles, whom he set aside and called into the ministry of apostleship. They are recounting and they are, by the inspired work of the Holy Spirit, conveying the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, anything that contradicts what we're teaching and preaching and writing is a different doctrine and is contrary to sound words. It's unsound, unhealthy, unwholesome, and it ought to be avoided. Not only is it the body of truth and the words, but notice what it causes and what it produces. He says, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness. The doctrine conforming to godliness. The doctrine of Christ conforms to godliness or holiness, piety, living in, in honor of God, living on, with the name of Christ and for the glory of God produces a de this desire to grow, so, to overcome sin and ungodliness and to continually conform to the image of Christ. This is what the gospel does. He's already said that in... Other words, in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Notice what he said in 1 Timothy chapter 1. If we believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, what should it produce? Notice 1 Timothy 1 verse 8. 1 Timothy 1 8. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. 
The sound teaching is according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. If anyone lives like this, he's living contrary to the gospel. The gospel should produce godliness so that there is a desire to overcome and a repudiation of all of these sins. He's no longer indulging in them. He's no longer living like that. He's no longer practicing that because his belief in the gospel is changing him and producing godliness in him. Godliness, holiness, piety. It's being produced in him. And if it's not being produced in him, then he's believing a different doctrine. He's believing unsound words. And he's not believing the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, but believing the words of Satan and the world. That's what he's believing. Verse 4. He describes those who reject the sound words of Christ and godliness. Verse 4. 1 Timothy 6.4. He is conceited and understands nothing. The man who contradicts the gospel is conceited. He's proud and he's arrogant. He is all about himself and what he can obtain for himself. He's not living for the gospel of Christ, the glory of God, the kingdom of God. He's not living for that. He's living for his own conceit. Anyone who detracts and distracts and contradicts the word of God is a conceited man and understands nothing. He may convey, he may uh, appear to know a lot, he may appear to know a lot about what's in the Bible and the Christian life, he may propound the, the Bible and say many things, but he understands nothing. He really doesn't get the basic point. And if he doesn't get the basic point, he's got a shaky and cracked foundation, then what's the point of listening to anything else? Why walk into the building? Why, why trust the, the walls of the, of the house? Why trust the roof? If you can't trust the foundation. He understands nothing. So no point in giving any credibility to what he says. He's conceited and understands nothing. This is why purity of doctrine is so important. Because there are many who mix and match according to their whims and fancies. They mix and match and sometimes what they say is good, but at other times what they say is horrible and corrupt and contra contradicts the doctrine of Christ. This is why there has to be sound doctrine, purity of doctrine, and that doctrine should conform to godliness. He further describes the unbeliever and, and false teacher in verse 4. He says, But he has a morbid interest a twisted, distorted, morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words. He doesn't have a sound and straight mind. He doesn't have a, a new heart and a true heart because he has a twisted and distorted, morbid interest in controversial questions. He, 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 he's always speculating. He's always pro proposing this or that. He's not talking about the real issues and the basic issues. It's not changing anybody. It's just making more and more people uh, controversial, more and more people speculative, more and more people who discount the Bible or say, well, we can never figure it out. And then throwing in confusion with disputes about words. 
One example is at the end of the chapter. In 1 Timothy 6.20, he says, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. When he says this, they falsely call it knowledge. Well, everybody uses this word knowledge. And what does the Bible mean by the word knowledge? We need to know. And whatever the Bible means, fine and good. That's what we ought to believe. That would be sound words, words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the doctrine conforming to godliness. But many others use the word knowledge, but what they mean by knowledge is not what the Bible means by knowledge. What they mean is twisted and distorted. And this is how they use the word. And then when we say knowledge means this or that, they say, no, 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 that's not what it means. It means something else, and then whatever that something else is, they are wrangling about words. They're disputing about words. The obvious biblical meaning, they reject, and then substitute it with something that actually contradicts it. This is what they do. They do it with the word knowledge. They do it with the word gospel, with Jesus, with Christ, Son of God, on and on. And even moral issues of today, homosexuality, they, they, these are obvious words in the Bible, clear words in the Bible, and then they make it very cloudy. They make it dark, and you can never figure out really what it means unless you read a specific book or a scholar who supposedly 2,000 years after Paul wrote about all this, he's figured out what Paul really meant. This is how they cloud the issues. They dispute about words. And what happens? Back to verse 4, 1 Timothy 6, 4. What does it produce? Out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. These are the people who agitate. They aggravate. They're the ones looking to pick fights, to be contentious. They are the ones who produce envy and strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction. They are the ones who do that. And they do it with each other because these men are men of depraved mind, between men of depraved mind. They don't have a regenerated mind. They have a depraved mind. They have still a corrupt mind that is an, an agitating mind, an aggravating mind. A mind that loves to be, as he says earlier in 1 Timothy 3, pugnacious, wanting to pick fights and look for argumentation and quarrels and disputes. That's what they do. And they produce abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction. They are unsettled unless they are constantly producing friction. And they are deprived of the truth. Someone may say, well, they get some things right, it's just other things they get wrong. Well, the apostle here says they're deprived of the truth. And earlier, he said they understand nothing. If this is characteristic of the, the people, the false teachers, if this is characteristic of them, then he says they, are, they understand nothing and they're deprived of the truth and they have a depraved mind. That means we can't pick and choose. We can't cherry pick what they teach. We just need to get rid of them altogether and find those 
who do have the true and sound body of doctrine and adhere to that and follow them. Another characteristic of these men, verse 5, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. The gain he means here is material gain, monetary gain. This is what they are after. They're after this kind of gain which he elaborates on in verses 7 to 10. He is talking about monetary gain. This is what they're focused on. They are fixated on this issue, on monetary gain for themselves. They love money. They don't love God. They use God and love money. This is the way that they are. Well, verse 6. Paul, using the word in a different sense, he says, verse 6, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Godliness is a means of great gain. This is what the men of depraved mind do not understand, that godliness is great gain. Because whatever you have in the material sense now, you understand it in right perspective. You have contentment, you have peace, and you have joy. You're not a slave to it. You're not worshiping it. You're not a slave as to the master, or you're not as the worshiper is to his idol. This is not what material possessions produce, but they produce contentment if you have approached it in the right way. And we look forward to the future. We are content now because we look forward to heaven. We look forward to the day that we will be with Christ forever and ever, and that is why we are here. We live for the day to come. We live for the day of Christ. This is what will help us understand what we have now, both what we have now materially and spiritually. Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. People think godliness is going to slow us down. They think it's going to create uh, hampers and dampers on them. But actually, godliness is a means of great gain. If they would just think clearly enough, soberly enough, they would understand, it's helping me now, and it will help me for the future. I'm preparing myself for the future. I'm going to meet Christ and be with Him forever. Now he presses the point about the money in verses 7 to 10, which problem is not only a problem among ministers, but also among the people generally. It's a problem everywhere. Verse 7, this is what we do not understand, that we need to understand. Verse 7, for we have brought nothing into the world. That's a fact. That's a fact. No one can deny that fact. Everyone's parents can confirm this fact. We brought nothing into the world. That's a fact. So we cannot take anything out of it either. Because God ordained that we come from dust and that we return to dust. Genesis 3, 17 and 19. He ordained that that's what would happen. And so we know, which is also a fact, there are eyewitnesses to the fact that whenever people die, they go into the grave 
and they're not taking their Cadillacs and their houses and all the other things that they own, they're not taking them into the grave. It's a fact. So we cannot take anything out of it either. Well, if that's what we have for 70 or 80 years now, what are we supposed to do? Understand our possessions properly in relation to the future, in relation to being forever with the Lord. And this is what we need. Verse 8. And if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Be content with the basic necessities of life. Be content with them. Don't, don't be ambitious, selfishly ambitious to go beyond this because this is what plunges men into ruin and destruction, as he says. Be content with basic necessities, not jumping in leaps and bounds to accomplish the, the conquest of the world in order to have everything you want with millions upon millions upon millions, uh, having uh, a, a huge fan base, whatever. That's not what we should be attracted to. We should be content with food and covering. Then we'll have peace. Then we'll have the peace of Philippians 4, 4 to 9. The, the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension and that will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When we have this kind of view of what we own. Then the danger, verse 9. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Those who want to get rich this is not talking about working hard and supplying the needs for you and your family. It's not talking about working hard and helping the poor, the, the righteous poor in the proper sense. It's not talking about how we should not be uh, tithing and, and helping in the ministry of the local church. It's not talking about that. It's talking about getting rich, getting rich, an insatiable desire fixated on riches straight ahead and everything else is peripheral the christian life is on the side yes occasionally i see it it's there and i'll i'll tap into it but really i'm fixated on the riches that's what he's talking about those who want to get rich temptation snare and many foolish and harmful desires this is what awaits and they plunge men into ruin and destruction. They're plunged into it. There's no escape. They're going to drown in it. They're going to drown in that filth in which they are uh, grasping and pursuing and swimming. They're going to be plunged into it and it will be their ruin and destruction. Verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Not the use of money, it's the love of money that is the source of all sorts of evil. And it is not the root of all evil, but all kinds of evil. Some evil comes about because of murderous desires or lustful thoughts and how those things are carried out. Those are different. That's not related to money. But he does say, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. 
a lot of things that happen in the world, you can boil it down to the, to the love of money. Jesus spoke about this love of money in Matthew, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon, money and material possessions. You cannot have two masters, only one. You're going to have a, a love and a hate relationship with these two masters. You will love one, hold to one, and then the other you must hate and despise. You cannot hold the two together. One or the other will have the priority in your life. This is what Paul's saying as well. And what happens when this love of money occurs? And some by longing for it, they long for it, they dream for, uh, of it, they can't sleep, they don't want to sleep. They work hard and hard and hard because they love money, they long for it. What happens to them? They wander away from the faith. They wander away from the, pay, uh, from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. They're not acting and they're not living according to the faith. They're wandering from the faith. They're off the path, they're off the straight and beaten path, the, the path of heaven and the path of Christ. They're walking away from it. They're wandering away from it. They're going into the woods and into the forest and jungle where they're going to come across wild animals and beasts that are going to consume them. Where the snare of the trapper is over there, as he said in verse 9. Temptation and the snare, many foolish and harmful desires. That's where they're going. They're wandering off the path and they're endangering themselves. And they pierce themselves with many a pang. It's bad enough when women have, have birth pangs, which comes upon them naturally. But it's even worse when someone knows that when he pursues a, a wrong thing, that it's going to come back and pierce him and haunt him. He knows because the Bible teaches it. He knows because his preacher or teacher told him that. He knows because he's seen other people fall into the same thing and ruin them and their marriages and families. He knows that, but he pierces himself. Insane people, insane people who are beside themselves, fools as the book of Proverbs describes them, insane people do not comprehend things as they really are. And then they poke and goad themselves. They're harming themselves with these pangs. They pierce themselves with many a pang. They're not truly looking at things in the right way. They are blind. They're insane when they pursue the love of money. 